And that is the good news of the gospel. Uh, so tonight we will be turning our attention to Romans chapter number 8. And we will be covering what we looked at last week and verse number 30. Um, I know even talking to Preacher Richard, the way that we had this, this kind of built out from the beginning for the book of Romans, there are some places where we have kind of dealt with a verse and the object that Paul is talking about in that verse, but then had to go back and catch that verse again because a lot of Paul's writings go together. And especially in the end of chapter number 8, there are so many, so many key things that we can see here in verse, especially 28 through 30, that we could focus on that it almost, it almost means that you have to take multiple days to look at multiple aspects of these three or four verses. And that's kind of what we'll be doing um, if I can borrow your imagination for a minute before we kind of get into everything, um, if I were to have a cup of coffee up here, and I was going to go to the to uh, I was going to go to Circle K and get a cup of coffee, but the more I thought about it, the more I didn't want to spend money on coffee that I wouldn't be able to drink. Um, but if I had a cup of coffee up here we could come to the conclusion that I had bought a cup of coffee because I was either thirsty or because I like coffee or because I need a little bit of more energy. And that's all well and fine. So we see how that coffee applies to me. If a scientist were to take that cup of coffee, they could probably tell you where the beans came from, what all kind of creamer I had added into it, where that creamer came from, what the different structures in that creamer are, how many cups of sugar that I had put in it. I don't put cups of sugar, but you understand what I'm saying. We would, we would be able to understand all the, com the components that are in that coffee. But the one thing that we would never understand, even some who may drink the coffee and some who may understand the coffee is why the coffee was made. Why somebody planted coffee beans, grew those coffee beans, ground those beans. Why did that happen? And that's part of what we see in these verses of Scripture that we'll be looking at tonight. We can come to these and we can enjoy what is there, just like we can enjoy a cup of coffee. We can come to these as theologians. I think it was R.C. Sproul said, everybody's a theologian, you're either a good one or a bad one. But we can come to these and try and study the text and figure out what ingredients Paul was using in this text specifically. And that's what we're going to attempt to do some tonight is see the ingredients that Paul was using in what he was saying. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we may not know why God is doing things the way He's doing them. And it's because that's God's purpose. That's God's story. That's God's plan. And that's God's business. And if God didn't tell us, hey, this is exactly why I did this, then it's none of our business to try and explain exactly why He did this. As, as Christians, as students of the Scriptures, our call is to be able to give an answer for the hope that was within us. Me and I think me and Brother Charles were talking this morning. I don't have any, I don't have any reason or right to try and give anybody an explanation for something that's not in Scripture. That's not my job. I don't have to be able to explain exactly why I believe 
in creation above evolution. I mean, I think we can point to things like the Grand Canyon and other places where we can see why physical evidence for why we believe this, but we believe it by faith because God said it. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And I don't have to explain exactly why I believe it. I just have to know what I believe. I don't have to know the molecular structure of the tadpole as it goes to a, into a frog because it doesn't matter. What matters is that I have the faith to believe God at His Word. And there are some things that we will see in the text tonight that we don't have to explain. We can, we believe, we may believe a little bit different. I may be little, believe a little bit different about it than Lindsay may believe about it. And Lindsay may believe a little bit different than Miss Claudette may, may believe about it. And we may believe about it as a church a little bit different than church down the road believes. But ultimately, when it comes to the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because all we have to do is have faith in what God has said He made this for. We don't have to know the reason behind it. We don't have to know all the different intricacies that go along with it. But we have to have faith that God said what He said and He meant what He said. Even if we don't understand it. Because there's going to be texts in the Scripture that we come to that we don't fully understand. And when we come to those texts... That's whenever the faith in us, that promise in us, the spirit in us kind of kicks in and we're able to take those things by faith, even though they may be hard for us to understand. It's the same thing that the disciples did in John chapter 6. There was a bunch of people who were following Jesus that said, these things are hard sayings. And it said that many quit following him. But his disciples who didn't understand what he was saying either, when he would turn to them, he said, are you going to keep following me? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of life. Peter didn't know exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not at that point in time. But what Peter did know is that he had the words of life. He was the one that he was following. And all the other things he was, he was going to let bypass him because he was focused on following Christ. So as we actually get into the text tonight... I'll cover one more thing in the introduction and we'll, we'll move through the scriptures. What Paul has basically done here, and we've seen that as we move through chapter number 8. We've seen that he talks about us having tribulation, having things that we go through, having infirmities that cry out in us, and that we have the Spirit that helps us with those things. So Paul has taken what is starting to look like it's starting to break down and he has basically with a big can of red spray paint spray painted hope on those things that we are afraid of falling apart because of the spirit we have that hope but what paul has done in verse number 28 specifically is paul has built a skyscraper so to speak he's built this huge structure and at the very top of it paul puts all things work out together for good to them that love God and them that are called according to His purpose. Paul gives us this huge promise that everything in our life is going to work out for the good of us that are called according to His purpose. But at the very top of that, we have to understand that every huge building has a huge foundation. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be looking at why our salvation is secure. Why the promises of God are secure. When I was doing a little bit of research on that specifically, I found out that, if I'm not mistaken, the Empire State Building, if I, if I read correctly, is over 1,500 feet tall. But the foundation for the Empire State Building are almost 100 feet deep. 
So for going 1,500 foot tall, they had to go about 10% down in order to maintain that structure. And that's what Paul is doing in the text we'll be reading tonight. Paul is putting down a deep foundation that we're not going to be able to see all of and we may not be able to understand all of. But the foundation is secure to hold the promises that God has given. So we'll read verse number 28, 29, and verse number 30 and focus on verse number 29 and specifically on verse number 30 tonight. In Romans chapter number 8, verse number 28, the Bible says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And then he explains on who those people are. Who loves God? To them that are called according to His purpose. Because we understand from John that if we love God, it's only because He first loved us. And Paul is going to continue that thought in verse number 29. It says, whom, For whom He did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And I want you to notice something in those two short verses that we read on who's doing all the work. He did. He also. He might. He did. He also. He called. He also. He justified. He also. So there's one person who's doing all the acting in these verses. There's somebody who's receiving these actions, but there's one initiator of all these actions. And that one initiator is the God who set His love upon His creation and did some things according to His purpose. None of these links, so to speak, that we are looking at tonight are forged by us. These are the links that Paul gives us. In essence, these are chain links that Paul gives us to show the strength of the promise of God that we are saved. To show the strength of the promise of God that He has a plan. These are the links in this chain that God has given us that in essence link us to the anchor that holds within the veil that we read about in the book of Hebrews. But if any of these chains were beholden on us to forge, then we're in trouble. I've not been around chains a lot. Some other people I know have. But I do know when a chain starts to fray some and you try and pull something with it, it bends and it pops. Even in the industry that I work in, we, we make pumps that go down 200 feet into wells and landfills. And I won't go bore everybody with all the details on why. But just, just for sake of illustration, those pumps go about 200 foot down. Sometimes 180, 200 foot. And they have cable that goes down with them. And there's chain that goes down on those to be able to lift that pump back out of it when it needs to be serviced. And I have seen those links in those chains that have become corroded over time or that were not done correctly to begin with pull apart and snap. And I have been around when pumps have been lost 200 foot down in a well where nobody's going to get them. Because a chain snapped. 
But that's not the case for the child of God because we are not the ones that forged these links. The Bible tells us that God has forged all of these links together and our salvation is completely assured. We have a promise that it is secure in Christ who is in God and in us. So your salvation is completely secured. And for that reason, when we come to texts like this, they are texts not to browbeat people and they're texts not to be prideful over, but they're texts of assurance. Yes. They're texts that God in His grace has decided to say, hey, I've got this. Your salvation is secure. Don't worry about that. I've got a hold of you because I had a plan to begin with. Just as the cross was always going to happen because it was the purpose and the plan of God, our ultimate salvation will happen if we've trusted Christ because that is the ultimate purpose and plan of God. And that's what he says there in verse number 29. He said, He did predestine to conform to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And we're going to come back to this till the end of the verse. Or to the end of the message. But what Paul is saying is that God has planned this and he's based this around his son. So unless the son falls, this plan is in place because God has originated this plan. So moving along into the outline that I've laid out, I've got three points. I've got that our salvation is secure because God has, number one, originated it. Number two, he's affected it. And number three, he has completed it. So God has originated a plan, effected a plan, and will complete the plan. And it reminds me of a verse that Paul wrote also that said, if God authored our faith, he will finish our faith because it's his faith. So first of all, our salvation is secure because it is originated by God. And we see this first in a word in verse number 29, Paul said, Whom he did foreknow. So this ties us back to verse number 28. So who do all things work together for good? It's them that love God. Who love God? It's the ones that are called according to His purpose. So if we love God, we've been called according to His purpose. And he continues, he said, So the ones that are called according to His purpose, we know and understand that this happened because He foreknew them. If we pay attention to what the Scripture says, without even having to look at any kind of understanding of what Paul was saying in his language, the Bible says that whom he did foreknow. The Bible doesn't say what he did foreknow. It says whom he foreknow. There's a people that God knew. It wasn't an event that God foresaw. It was a people that God knew. A people that God had put His love upon. And that only happened because of grace. God did not look down through time and say, Well, Brother Charles, if I save him, he's going to turn into a pretty good guy. He didn't do that. Why well, he looked down through time and said, I'm going to pour out my grace on Charles Nagy because I can and I want to. It wasn't anything that he was going to become. It was the plan and purpose of God. And in our day-to-day -day life, if we are saved by the grace of God, we have been saved because we didn't merit it. 
by default, when we say, I've been saved by the grace of God, what we are saying, even though our other words sometimes contradict this, what we're being saying is that I am saved because I didn't deserve it. I'm saved and I don't even know the reason why. Because it was just the grace of God. It was the grace of God that brought salvation to us. But the word here, foreknew, it means to know before. Pretty simple. Foreknew means to know before. But again, when we look at this, it's not that God said, I am going to place my love on people who are going to turn out good, or I'm going to place my love on people who might act in such a certain way. God said, I'm going to place my love on who I want to. That's why Jesus himself said that he didn't come for the high and the mighty, for the learned, for the rich, for the wisdom of man. He came for the beggarly things. He came for the stuff that nobody else wanted. Even in his ministry, we didn't find Jesus resurrecting and going up to Caesar and saying, Look, I'm resurrected. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And I'm about to take over. That's not what he did. We see him going to a former prostitute in the garden. We see him going to two unnamed people walking down the road who didn't even really believe what he had said. And he explains to them what was said about him. And we've covered all that. But he didn't go to who we thought he... If it would have been me, I would have resurrected and went straight to Herod and then to Pontius Pilate and then over to the high priest. That's exactly how I would have done it. Because I would have said, look, y'all were beating me. You crucified me. You didn't like me, but here I am again. That's what I would have done. But that's not what Christ did because that's not the plan of God. What makes sense to us doesn't make sense to God because it doesn't make sense to us. What makes sense to us is very, very low compared to what God has planned. But that's what this word foreknew means. It means that he knew before. We can know him because he knows us. We love him because he first loved us. Even even those, when, and I'm, I'm not going to belabor this, but even those who would be 110% against these verses of Scripture and what these verses of Scripture say would not come to anybody and say, I saved myself. Nobody says that. Because at our core, those of us who have trusted Christ understand that we didn't do it. We may not be able to wrap our minds around the plan of the way God set out things, but we all agree that we didn't do it. And that's what Paul's telling us. If you love Him, it's because He loved you first. If you came to Him, it's because He came to you first. If you called on Him, it's because He called on you first. God is the originator in our salvation. If He has started our salvation, He is going to finish our salvation. So we see, first of all, that He loved us. He foreknew. And that word knew is, it's a for, it's, it, the word knew is the same type of word as Adam knew Eve or Abraham knew Sarah. It's an intimate type of love. God knew us in an intimate type of way. Even when we were his enemies, he set his love on us. And that makes grace even greater. Knowing that God took his enemies and set his love upon his enemies. I know even the illustration that was used this morning about God being just and the justifier. Ultimately, In the courtroom of God, it was the judge's family who had been murdered. 
and he got down and sacrificed himself for what the man did to him. That makes grace even greater. And that makes that love of God even greater. That's the reason that if we took the oceans full of ink and tried to write the love of God in the skies, we couldn't do it because that is how great the love of God is. That He loved people who hated Him. So we see that first of all, He loved us. And secondly, He set Himself toward us. And we see that in verse number 29. So not only did He foreknow, but He did predestinate. And He did this in a specific way. Where foreknew means to know before and to love before. Predestined means to determine before. So all these things are being done before we even come on the scene. But it says that he did predestine and he did this in verse number 29. He predestined according to the same purpose that he mentions in verse number 28. He didn't just do it for no reason. He had a plan. He had a purpose that he was laying out. And while some in our day may say that God has a wonderful plan for your life, God is more concerned with his eternal purposes than he is for the wonderful plan for our lives. We get to be a part of his wonderful purposes and see wonderful plans take place in our lives. But God's main focus is on his purposes, not on our plans. Again, because our plans are completely different than his plans 110% of the time. So he had a purpose. And the beauty of this purpose is that it's around a person. It says that we might be conformed into the image of his son. He loved us when we hated him. He determined when we hated Him to love us and change us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And the beauty in this is that if God placed this purpose around a person being the Son of God, God Himself, He's not going to let any one of those purposes fall through the cracks. He's not going to let any one of those people in those purposes, fall through the cracks. Nothing in history is going to fall through the cracks and God had to change His plans around a different way because He set forth a purpose to conform those people to the image of His Son. God's ultimate plan isn't just for us to come once a week, twice a week, or even three times a week, listen to some announcements, make some prayer requests, sing a couple of songs, and hear the word preached. That's not God's sole plan for us. That's not what Paul is saying. And we can understand that because I grew up for years and years and years, and that never changed me. Those things didn't change me. What did change me was God's word and God's spirit. That's the plan of God. The plan isn't something we're doing. It's something that God is doing. It's conforming us. The Bible doesn't say that His plan was for us to be conformed into Him. He said the plan was for Him to conform us. We continuously put the cart before the horse in everything that we do, thinking that it's about us and not about Him. He is going to conform us into His image and for a sole purpose that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose is that Christ is preeminent. 
That's what firstborn means. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be born first. It means he's going to have the preeminence. In those days, the firstborn had the preeminence. And guess what? Specific instance of this happened in the Old Testament. Esau should have had the preeminence. But as far as the law was concerned, Jacob was the firstborn because Jacob was given the preeminence. That preeminence came from the plan of God. And Christ is a better Jacob. Christ is a better Israel. That's what God said. You're not Jacob. You're Israel now. And I'm going to make the world blessed through you just like I promised your grandfather Abraham. But God has said, this plan wasn't even about Jacob. He got to be a part of this. But this plan was about Christ. That He might be the preeminent, the firstborn among many brethren. And we are the many brethren. God's plan is so that Christ can be the preeminent one of His people. That's the plan of God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. We're being conformed. So that God can, in essence, fill heaven with a bunch of people that look like His Son. And His Son can be the preeminent one of all those. But the beauty in that is our salvation is secure because that's the plan of God. And the beauty in that is we get to participate in that beautiful plan. We get to be a part of it. It's not that God has cast us to the side. He's included us in the perfection of His plan. So not only has God originated this plan, He's also affected this plan. And He did this in a way that we can see here in verse number 30. So God foreknew, God predestined to conform us into the image of His Son, that He may be the firstborn or preeminent one among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine, and we've covered that. So Paul, Paul's doing verse number 30. He's going back and he's attaching these links together. Just so we make sure that we understand everything, he's going back and he's attaching all this stuff together and he's pulling this chain from verse number 28 all the way over to the end of the chapter. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And this isn't just a general call. It's the same call, the same wording that if we go to the book of Luke and go to the book of John, we can see. Because Jesus did something. He called to somebody one time. And that was talked about this morning also. (laughs) When the Bible says that He called Lazarus, come forth, it's the same call. It was a specific call. I've heard, I've heard the illustration used before. They said that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if he would have just said, come forth, the whole grave would have got up. And that may very well be possible. I don't know. But that was not the intent that John gave us. What John wanted us to know is that Jesus was specifically calling, calling Lazarus out of the grave. And that's what God does with us. He specifically calls us. When God came to me, He didn't say, Jeremy Page, who was the man sitting beside of me, come on to me. He didn't call him. He didn't just walk in and say, hey, everybody come. In a sense, he does do that. But that night, that night specifically, he came to Jeffrey Perry, and he called Jeffrey Perry. He wasn't worried about everybody else that was sitting around me. He was calling somebody specific. 
That's what he did when he went to that garden tomb that Lazarus was in. He called somebody specific, and that is what Paul said he does with us. The them he also called. The call for all men. The Bible says in Mark that Jesus began his ministry by preaching, repent and believe. Turn from what you're looking at now and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was a call to everybody. And for us, when we are out talking to people, when we're out in our daily lives, when we are here at the church, wherever we are, the call for everyone is to come to God. We're not restricting that call and we're not to restrict that call from anyone anywhere because the call of God, even in the book of Revelation, it says the Spirit and the bride say, come. The call is to come. But this call was specific. It was the same call, but it was a specific call. The call here, we can see illustrated in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. This, this whole understanding in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 has completely morphed, changed, whatever you want to call it. My whole understanding of salvation and the way that God looks at us and the way that God draws us. And that's the word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 when he says reconciled. Paul makes some specific calls to the Corinthian church. He First of all, he tells them that they have been reconciled. That they are being reconciled. And then he says your job is to tell other people that they can come and be reconciled. But the one thing that we can all look at even our own lives and understand is that one day that reconciliation, that general call of reconciliation that we are taking to Rowan County becomes a specific call to reconciliation to specific people. When they hear the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When they hear the gospel, there's a point in people's life when that call becomes specific to them. And they see themselves reconciled unto God. And that's what Paul was talking about there in chapter number 5 of 2 Corinthians. He was calling them to see the gospel and to see themselves reconciled. Even Pritchard, as you know, has made the statement again and again that Whosoever will means nothing until it means you. You can make the call of salvation all day long, but until it becomes personal, it's not going to matter to you. I've talked to people. I've given the gospel to people that it was like it just was like water on the back of a duck. It just rolled off of them. But when that call comes specific, it doesn't just roll off their back. We may run from it. We may reject it. But there's a difference between a general call of salvation and a specific call to God. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's saying, those whom he predestined, he also called. He didn't leave it up to them. He called them specifically and said, you look, live, you have been reconciled. Not just a reconciliation for everyone, and it is for everyone. But he comes to us and he says, Ricky Beaver, you have been reconciled unto God. And when you see that, it changes you. Because you were an enemy, and now you're not. And it's, it's a whole light that's shed upon people through the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It's the grace of God to say, hey, you've been reconciled to God. And God didn't leave that up to just anybody. His Spirit comes and He calls those whom 
He predestined and He predestines those that He foreknows. Amen. As we continue down through it, not only do we see those that He called, so He initiated, He did the calling, but He also does the justifying. Verse number 30, those whom He called and whom He called, them He also justified. And we understand the word justification. It means to declare righteous. Just like a judge would do to that in that courtroom. That gavel hits the desk and he says not guilty. But we were guilty. But we're not guilty because the guilty verdict has already been decreed. 2,000 years ago, the guilty verdict was decreed and it was carried out for those whom he justified. If somebody looks at you tomorrow and says, well, when did you get saved? You can look at them in full assurance and say about 2,000 years ago when God poured out His wrath that I deserved onto His Son. And at that point, even though in time we don't see and experience that justification until a specific time in our life, in the mind of God, we experience justification when the Son of God died. That's when we were declared righteous. What he did on the cross, when he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. He didn't say it's almost finished and I've got to wait until these people catch up. He said, in my mind, this is done. It's finished. It's over with. Those he called, he justified. He declared them righteous. This act of righteousness was in respect to us. Now, what we see in our own life, what we see happen in us... In, in, in our hearts, God, it says that God regenerates us. That is us being born again. Regeneration is the means, it means to be born again. That's what it means. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again, what Jesus was saying is, Nicodemus, you must be regenerated. You're not going to understand any of this unless you're regenerated. Because Paul tells us later on, only the spiritual man understands the spiritual things of God. So Jesus said, you're not even going to be able to understand what I'm talking about. Unless you've been born again. But that's what God does in our life. So justification is in respect to us and it happens on Calvary. Regeneration happens in our life in us. So even though we've been declared just by God, we must be regenerated in time, if that makes sense. It's not that when somebody is born, they're already saved. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying in the mind of God, and we'll get to that, in the mind of God, things are already done. That's how secure this is. This is finished. God's not waiting for it to play out. It's already finished. So those, we see he does these things by calling, number one, and by justifying, number two. And then thirdly, He will complete this salvation. So He originates it, He affects it, and we see that He's going to complete it. And we see that in the end of verse number 30. It says, Them whom He justified, them He also glorified. And notice the tense that Paul uses there, and that's what I was alluding to. In the mind of God, we are justified. And glorified. That's why John said, I saw thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. John went so far as to say there was an amount of people that I could not even number that were before the throne singing and praising God saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's where those people came from. 
Because in the mind of God, they were already there. For John and for Paul, they didn't have to wonder if they would one day be glorified. This, this text that Paul has given us, he's not still over in chapter number 7, wondering who's going to deliver him from the body of death. Because he understands in the mind of God, he has been delivered from the body of death. And that gives him the assurance that he will be daily delivered from the body of death. That's how this acts in a practical way, just as, as well as an assurance way. A way to give us assurance works out practically because we can have the trust and the faith that God's already done these things. So when these things come up in our life, we can know that we're going to get through them because it's God that's carrying us through it anyway. Because in his mind, he's already finished the work. It says that he will glorify them. He's going to perfect in this glorification. Christ has been glorified. When he ascended to the Father, said that he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of Hebrews tells us, quoting a book in Psalm, or a chapter in Psalms, says that he is seated at the right hand of his Father until his enemies be made his footstool. And the last enemy is death. See, what Christ is, he came and he made basically all of his enemies his footstool. We don't live in a world where the devil is reigning anymore. Because Colossians chapter 3 says that he took the principalities and the powers of this world, defeated them at the cross, and then it said that he spoiled them to open shame. What that was talking about back in that day, I know I've alluded to this before, but they would actually take those that had been conquered and in a parade of triumph would chain these people to the back of the chariot of the reigning king. They would be basically drugged behind the king. They could kind of run around a little bit. They could kind of get around a little bit, but they were on a leash. What does Peter tell us? He said that the devil is walking around like a roaring lion. He's still around. But he's leashed. Don't go over where he's at. Because he'll devour you. That's the warning that Peter was giving us. But the principle of what Paul is saying is that Christ is reigning. Christ was glorified. And if Christ was glorified, then you will be glorified. That's the assurance that we have. Christ is glorified and God is glorifying Christ in us, in our life. Every day that we live, God is little by little glorifying Christ in us. Every, what did Paul say? Again, and I, I know I'm alluding to a lot of stuff that Paul said without specific text, and I hate that I'm doing that, but I think most of us know where these texts can be found. But Paul said, everything you do, do to the glory of God. He said, if you eat or you drink, do all things to the glory of God. Because that's the plan of God. And God conforming us to His image, He is daily glorifying Christ in us so that we will one day be glorified to Him. That's the plan of God. And that's the plan that we're able to participate in. And the fact of the matter is, if God has saved us, First number three tells us that we are glorified in the mind of God. We are not going to be not glorified. It can't happen. God has decided this is already done. It's not even the plan that He's going to do. It's the plan that He has done. He has glorified us in His Son. So a couple of things come up, and we'll cover these really quickly. But a couple of things come up in my mind when I go through texts like this. What about praying? 
Well, Paul covered that a couple weeks ago, or we covered it through, through Paul's writings. If God has these purposes, then why do we pray? Well, the Bible tells us, Likewise, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. Verse number 26. For we know not what we should pray. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So, we don't know what to pray. The Spirit is translating those prayers for us. Saying to God, this is what they need. But we are participating in prayer. That should drive a prayer life. If nothing else, that should drive a prayer life like no other. Knowing that we are participating in a winning prayer life should drive a victorious prayer life. That no matter what, we are praying because we are participating in those things. God is taking those things and fulfilling those things according to His plan and in essence giving us the credit for praying for those things. We understand that we're not getting credit physically. But we see those things happen in our life. We are able to see things accomplished that we have prayed for because God is allowing us to participate in His plan as children of God. That's the reason Paul said, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. Pray in a way that you're going to see most of your prayers answered because you've got the mind of God and see what His plan is. If we pray that sinners are saved, guess what? That's going to happen. If we pray that God will glorify Himself, that's going to happen. If we pray that God is almighty that has happened. Any of these things that we pray in the mind of God happen, but we are able to participate in those things. And because God has called us to pray without ceasing and given us the ability to pray and the strength to pray, we can pray knowing that these things are going to happen. And it changes the way that we pray. We don't pray with a hopeful attitude that maybe this will happen if I pray hard enough and I do enough. We can pray with an assurance that God is going to do exactly what He had planned on doing and He is allowing us to participate in that. But that also carries over into tonight's text as well. What about preaching? If I read this, and I stand back and I, I just were to read these two verses, and unfortunately that's what a bunch of people do. A bunch of people will just read these two verses and they'll come up with their own conclusions about two verses out of context of the whole book, much less the chapter of what Paul was saying. And they say, well, I don't know if I believe all this stuff that Paul is saying because all I read was these two verses and I don't understand what he's talking about. If we do that, then yeah, you could come to the conclusion and say, well, if you believe those verses, then you obviously don't believe that you should preach or give the gospel to anybody. And I, even, I have close friends that believe that way. And that's fine because we both, are pre, we both believe in the preeminence of Christ and we can find unity in the gospel. But what Paul is saying to us is not don't give the gospel. He said you've got assurance in giving the gospel. I don't know, I don't know if these names will ring familiar with anybody, but there were men like Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, was, he's known as the father of the modern missions movement. William Carey was one of the first people that went out and stirred up a big, a big idea of missions in people. There were, even, there were even people who, misunderstanding texts like this in his day, told William Carey, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it. He don't need your help. To which his response was, who are you to say that God hasn't decided to save the heathen with my help? Because he rightly understood what God was saying. 
we have been given the opportunity to participate in the plan of God. That's why Paul said, I'm a debtor to the Jew and to the Greek, to the barbarian and to the wise. That's why Paul said that he was a debtor to those people because he had something that they didn't. And he wanted to take what he had to those people with the assurance that God was going to call those people through the power of the gospel that he talks about in the verse right after that. Paul wasn't just blowing smoke out of his rear when he says this stuff. He knew what he was trying to convey to the Roman church. He was telling them that you can go out and give the gospel to people and be assured that the gospel is going to do its work. That's the call for us. We are called to daily pray. We're called to daily proclaim the gospel because God is working in our prayers and he's working in the gospel. And then we can come away thinking, what a God. He let me participate in this. I don't have to worry if I didn't say all the right things because I gave the gospel and God works with the gospel. If he comes to Christ, it has nothing to do with me anyway. If my prayers are answered, they had nothing to do with me anyway. Because we have been given the benefit of participating in these purposes and these plans of God. And going back, just so I can pick that up real quick. That modern missions movement, William Carey, and Iram Justin, all these men, those men would not be allowed in pulpits in Rowan County. They would not be allowed in pulpits in the United States. They would not be allowed in pulpits all across the world because they believe in certain things that people don't like. But what they believed, they believed correctly and understood what it meant. William Carey, what drove him to go to India and see hundreds of thousands of people saved throughout his lifetime and through what came from his ministry? There was a verse in Revelation where it said, I saw every nation, tribe, and tongue. William Carey said, God has people in India. I've got to go tell them. That's what drove the greatest missions movement that the world had seen since the time of the apostles was the understanding that God does the work. It's not a dampen to what we do. It's not a wet blanket to the proclamation of the gospel. It doesn't dampen down our Christianity. It causes us to see God for who He is and see us for who we are in His work. He's the preeminent one. He's the one doing all of this. He does it in our lives every day. He does it in lives of other people every day. And everything that He does, He does. But it's as simple as what we had told Reagan when she had lost her cat. She lost a little stuffed cat. And she was praying that God would send her cat back to her. And she was two or three years old at the time. Well, lo and behold, God heard those prayers and mom and dad heard those prayers. And guess what happened? There's a cat showed up in the mail. A purple stuffed cat. Why? Because God heard the prayers of a little girl. But he used her parents and the mailman and somebody at an Amazon fulfillment center, who knows where, to fulfill his purpose in that small way. And in the scheme of things, that's us. God has purposes. God hears prayers. God's doing specific things. 
And every day, He's allowing us to participate in those things. Mom and Dad got to be a participant in seeing a girl overjoyed when she opened up a box. But guess what? There was a mailman and somebody at an Amazon Fulfillment Center that never saw that joy. Were they any less participating in it? No, they were completely participating in it. But it's, they were participating in it unknowingly because there was a plan to get that to her. And for us, there's a plan to get salvation to people. There's a plan for people around us to hear the gospel. And God, whether we know it or whether we don't know it, whether we see it, whether we never see it, God is using us every day to get His plan to His people. That's why we're here. And that's the assurance that we have. Number one, we have the assurance that God is allowing us to participate in His plan. But for us specifically and for the text that we were looking at tonight, God's plan is secure. I didn't have to participate to be able to be a part of it, but I am a part and I'm able to participate. But it wasn't, it wasn't contingent on me. And it wasn't contingent on the man who was preaching that night. If he would have decided to go a different direction, he wouldn't have swayed the plan of God. Because God would have already planned for something to happen. It's not contingent. But we can participate. We can be a part of it. And that's those people that we hear about at the judgment seat. Those are just the ones who participated. We don't have to participate. God's plan is going to accomplish no matter what we do. But we've been given the opportunity to participate. And our participation, we can rest in participating because we know that God has done everything that it takes to get there. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for a chance and opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the men of old that you 